The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, let's try and preserve the format we had this morning. So I'll talk for a bit, and then we'll have some questions, and then perhaps a break, come back and do some more talking and some more questions. Does that sound okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, first of all, let's, let's approach a, a topic I hope to be controversial on. <laughs> what is this uh, practice about, and what is it not about? Well, I'm going to start with what is it not about, first of all. I'm just going to say a few words. Um, and I do, as I say, I do hope they're going to be controversial, at least to some of you. Well, first of all, the one thing I would say is that the practice is not about mysticism. It's not a mystical practice. The Buddha, from my reading of the texts, um, from this earliest strata, no matter what the traditions say, and the traditions say all sorts of things, is the practice is aimed very much at the here and now. It's not about some kind of transcendental reality to be tapped into or to reach. It's about reaching where we are now, becoming who we are now, in a sense, but not in the sense of being static about where we are. To use the classic phrase, the teaching is about this, and this often gets misinterpreted. I'll give you the parley for it. Yata Bhutan. You know what this means? Yeah. Seeing, the, seeing the way things are. Seeing the way they actually are. Now, for many people, and I don't know if this strikes you, for many people, seeing the way things are almost feels like having a divine eye to see the inner essence. Some kind of mystical experience, some hallucinogenic experience of what things are. It isn't. Um, Seeing the way things are is summed up very succinctly by the Buddha, and I'm sure you all have come across this, uh, although you might not remind yourself of it, as seeing them as being what is characterized by what is known in Pali as the tilakana, the three characteristics. We can never get away from this in the early teaching. This is the content of Yata Bhutan, the three characteristics. Seeing the way things are. Impermanent, anicca. Dukkha, again, I'm not going to go on and describe that. I did enough of that this morning. And, of course, anatta. Notice the bridge between. Often, again, they get jumbled up and mixed up. It is actually impermanent, dukkha, and anicca. And dukkha is like the bridge between them. Um, It's because we don't experience things as anicca, or as anatta, that we perceive them as dukkha. So dukkha is the key term in this, but this is the three characteristics. This is the way of seeing things as they really are, as impermanent, dukkha, and not self. 
That is it. End of story. <laughs> Easy to say, though, isn't it? <laughs> um, as again, I, I'm kind of referring, I'm sort of wearing two hats here as I talk to you, because I know you're a Dharma practitioner, of course, and I often teach just purely retreats. As often I will say in a retreat context, there is nothing hyper-intellectual about understanding that everything is impermanent, is there? Absolutely nothing intellectual about it. It doesn't take a great brain to work out that all things are impermanent. You know, they've been saying this since the early Greek period with people like Heraclitus, for example, um, that all things are impermanent. The problem is we just don't get it. That is the problem. We don't live as if things are impermanent. We live as if they are sorted with permanence and certainty. Um, in the field of human relationships, there's nothing worse than your partner changing on you. <laughs> you know, when they become someone else, develop another interest, dislike something they said they liked. Um, this is the irritating fact of ordinary life, isn't it? That all things are impermanent and things break down. Um, the ghost story writer, M.R. James, I don't know if anyone knows the story, he's a great English ghost story writer, he actually wrote a short story which was, I think, a wonderful title. It was called The Malice of Inanimate Objects. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing things to spite you, aren't they? <laughs> In some way or another. Look how upset you become when things break down on you. So impermanence is what is written into the warp and woof of life. This is what life is. Um, the great German language poet Rilke once said, we're in this world forever taking leave. Yeah. And as a correlate to that, he said, be ahead of all your partings. Yeah. You know, to actually be ahead of all your partings, to know that they're there. Yet, this is not the way we live. This is not seeing the way things are. We don't view them with the eye, impermanent, the eye of impermanence. Then we look for something which they are not. We look for them to possess something which they cannot deliver at all. So, as you can see, this is a great setup for our next term, which is Dukkha. If you're not seeing things with the eye of impermanence and living things with that eye of impermanence, as the Buddha is suggesting again and again and again in the early canon, then we set out ourselves for dukkha on a big scale. Yeah, because we literally do not live in accordance with the way things are. So again, let's just come back to my opening statement. It's not a mystical experience. It's the ability to live in a particular way and with a particular understanding of things. This is almost like an epistemological approach where actually it's the eye of knowledge which helps you to understand and to live with things as they are. Not to look for them to possess something that they do not possess, such as certainty and permanence. Yeah. This is where we set ourselves up for so many major falls, according to the Buddha in these early texts, is that we constantly, constantly look for the possession, the things to have the possession of something they simply do not and never will possess. There is nothing that is not impermanent. Okay, the rates of impermanence are different, aren't they? Yeah. 
the oldest edifices in the world crumble, but they do it at a different rate to human lives, which crumble quite fast, comparatively. Um, but nothing is unchanging. Now, the only time I think that this works for us, of course, when it's something we want to be changed. Then we welcome and embrace impermanence. When your headache disappears, you don't say, oh, I wish that the headache was permanent. <laughs> you know, you actually appreciate that it's gone when changes in your employment or something work for the better for you. Then you embrace them. But when they seemingly don't, they go against your wishes, then we reject them. So we set ourselves up for big-time aversion and craving, wanting and not wanting things to be. So this is the first one. This is, this is the really big obstacle in our ordinary lives. As I said right at the beginning of just introducing this topic, it doesn't take a great brain. Yeah, and all of us will probably nod our assent in some way or another when I say everything is impermanent and the Buddha says everything is impermanent. We all sagely nod our heads and go, oh yes, it's all impermanent. My pen doesn't work. <laughs> or whatever it might be. You know, th that things suddenly somehow don't go our way. That is Dukkha, yet again. When we don't get what we want. Yeah. So the Dukkha um, often is not about not just getting what we want. It's as Oscar Wilde sense is often getting what we want. Yeah. He says there's nothing worse than not getting want, what we want than getting what we want. Because actually, again, it doesn't produce the goods and it's often not permanent. And certainly even the pleasure that is attained when you acquire something, piece of knowledge, some material possession or that, doesn't last. It changes. So without stressing the point too much, impermanence is written into everything, into our emotional qualities, in our, into our looking for pleasure, and our obviously grasping after what we find which we like and rejecting that which we don't like. Yeah. The one good thing we often know about most aspects, even if it's unpleasant, is that it will change. It might not change in the sense of going away completely, but it will often change in terms of quality. A lot of... The practice is sensitization of change, sensitization to change, the changes that are occurring in our ordinary life, and the ability to live in permanence. Just connecting with another tradition for a second and moving away from the early texts, this is what Dogen says, you know, the great uh, Japanese um, Zen thinker, you know, that it, awakening is nothing other than the ability to live in permanence. I don't say I would go quite that far, but it's certainly one of the key components in it. And everything is impermanent, we will all say, coming back to my phrase, where we all sagely nod our heads, but a little voice inside generally goes, but not me. <laughs> Doesn't it? You know, it's like somehow you're exempt from it. You know, somehow we think we're immune from the impermanence which is written into everything. So that's the first big hurdle. This is the way of seeing things as they are. To see them as dukkha. What does that mean? There's many senses of dukkha, isn't there? There's the dukkha of impermanence. 
There's the dukkha of conditions. There is the dukkha of dukkha, the pain of pain, if you want to put it that way, of sickness and disease and old age and all of the things that go with corporeal existence. There is that dukkha. These are not going to go away. So there's a certain dukkha that doesn't go away, isn't there? In the Sangyutanakaya, it's very made very clear the kind of dukkha that the Buddha is talking about that we can deal with, which is, there's a sutta which is translated roughly as the sutta of the stone splinter, where it talks about the Buddha walking along the road for various reasons, as they did in those days, without any footwear on, you'd walk barefoot, and the shard of stone penetrates his foot. And it says this causes him immense pain, but effectively no dukkha. So pain is not going to go away. Pain is something that we will not get rid of. But, and this is the whole point of dukkha, the dukkha the Buddha is talking about is, and perhaps I'll propose it as a question, is there the possibility of coming into a different relationship with the pain which is inevitable in our lives? The pain of loss, the pain of old age, the pain of disease and sickness, and all of the natural things that arise in our life. This is the, this is the challenge. This is the challenge. That impermanence is so important, it's really to be seen in the Buddha's final words, as they're supposedly reported to us in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. In the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the Buddha says, and I'll give it to you in the official translation, and then I'll kind of gloss it. It says, all compounded phenomena are impermanent, now strive on with diligence. A better way of saying that, probably in more contemporary English, more modern English, is absolutely, absolutely everything you see around you is impermanence. Now get on with it. (laughs) Now make your way through life with that understanding. This actually refers, again, cross-referencing in the early text, this refers to something which is spoken about, certainly in the Mahayana tradition and in the early tradition, a lot, which is virya. Which is often translated as energy, you know, the striving on diligently. But the diligence here, and this is the actually the closest word in English, is um, basically virile. You know, it's energy, but it's also connected with with heroism, too, the ability to face life heroically. So virya was often referred to as a hero or heroine, also in the ancient tradition. So somebody who possesses this kind of energy to go on with this diligence is somehow being or showing heroism in the face of what Shakespeare, I would say, would call the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, the things that we can't avoid in our lives. So this is what we're dealing with, in a sense. Here's one of what... Here's one of the goals, perhaps, one of the main aspects of the teaching or of which the teaching is aimed at, which is the dealing with the vagaries of life. Life arising and falling, life's joys and sorrows, its comings and goings. You know, this is made very, very clear in the early texts. Yeah. It's not about some 
inner mystical experience. It's very much, and Nibbana, as we come to that, is also not about some inner mystical experience. If you want any mystical experience, you want to call it, it's this life. That's the mystery and the mysticism is enough here in dealing with this life. And this is what the Buddha, in a sense, is speaking of. This ability to deal with this life as it presents itself. Now, we like life when it presents itself very much when it's in our favour. When it's not in our favour, we're not exactly so happy about it, are we? When it's not working for us. Um, I actually, my own personal feeling about this is, this is obviously not what the Buddha says, but my own personal feeling is actually most human beings, even when they're you know, great ages, really haven't progressed much upon, upon uh, children. You know, the kind of what children do. When they like something, they're all joyful and jumping around about it, and when they don't like it, they're screaming and stamping their feet. We have just developed more sophisticated means for doing exactly the same. You know, in relationship to what is going on. You know, we stamp our feet verbally. <laughs> yeah. We express our kind of joyfulness verbally about it. But there isn't much freedom in this. And this is what the Buddha is saying. This is reactive. These are reactive patterns which are set up in the mind, and I'll come into this in a well, in a little while, because this is what actually basically the sankharas are in the personality traits. They are reactive patterns, not all bad. Let's not paint a completely monolithic picture of them being all bad. Um, Some of them are good, but they are reactive. They're not free. So one of the other goals of this teaching and this understanding of impermanence, the understanding of dukkha, is to develop a genuine responsiveness to life, not reactive. Yeah. To respond is still to be in the heart and the midst of life. It's not to be, and I might bet noir of words that I often hear banded around in Buddhist circles is the word detachment. That's one of my big bet noirs, because I think that the word detachment actually sounds like somebody standing on the periphery of life. It's all too often. It has a rather cold echo for me in English. Whereas, actually, it's really simply a product of our languages that when we talk about one of the main problems, of course, upadana, you know, attachment, grasping. When we talk about upadana, then, well, if we're talking about upadana, the opposite of upadana has got to be detachment. And it isn't. It's really correct engagement. That's really what it is. So we become correctly engaged with life. And then, there, of course, is the big one, which is much more difficult, a little bit, I would say, more philosophical, but actually isn't that difficult to get, which is anatta. Anatta, not self. What does this mean? What does not-self mean? It's not a great big deal of a concept to get your head round again. Um, I mean, some traditions have made, and I was in one of the worst traditions for doing this for quite a number of years, which the Tibetan tradition make a big, big deal about this, and they'll argue this for years and years and years, this notion of anatta and emptiness 
But it really isn't that difficult. It says that nothing possesses any kind of fixed essence. There is not a fixed essence of any of you sitting there. No one specific character trait that could remain totally permanent. Just like our bodies over time are being renewed and changing, yet we have the illusion of identity physically, then actually that's what's going on with our mental states as well. There is no fixed self, if you want to use the no self. Not that there is no self, but there is no fixed self. I don't mind no as a negation here when it's applied to fixed self. Do you know what this is? That idea of there is no fixed self. That's the good news, isn't it? <laughs> That's the good news, because it means that you know, whatever is bad and seemingly intractable in your life or your personality or that does not have to remain the same. It links up with the first of the characteristics. That too is impermanent. It can change. really what the process of the path is about is how do you nudge the change in the right direction (laughs) how do you work to get that change to work so that the qualities that are manifested in life and in your day to day life are kusala as opposed to akusala wholesome as opposed to unwholesome skillful as opposed to unskillful This is what the task is. Again, when the Buddha succinctly describes the path in the Dhammapada, and he doesn't get into vast philosophical discourses about it, does he? Most succinct um, definition of what the path is. To cease to do what is unwholesome, to learn to do what is wholesome, to clarify the mind. That is the teaching, he says, of all the Buddhas. Nothing else. Now, again, I think the words are deceptively simple, aren't they? They are very, very deceptively simple. But within that simplicity is great complexity in the task. And it is a practical task. The Buddha who stands out to me from the teachings, outside of the philosophies of the Theravada or Mahayana or any of these other schools that have developed, the Buddha that stands out to me or comes out of those pages of the Texas as we have them now is a figure of eminently practical concerns. He's not a philosopher. Philosophy speaks Greek. That's what philosophy is. It's the love of wisdom. Philosophia. Whereas what the Buddha is doing is something, in a sense, completely different and eminently practical. If there is any similarity between what the Buddha is doing and some of those Greek philosophers who come later that I mentioned, it's probably the closest is with Stoicism and Epicureanism. Yeah. Epicurus, for example, it said that no philosophy was worth anything unless it dealt with human suffering. So that was very practical teaching as well. So the Buddha that you really have to hear, from my perspective, out of these early texts, is an eminently practical Buddha. 
well, you heard what I said this morning. He starts off with the practical grounding in ethics. With moral, ethical concerns with our life that all too often get hijacked again by intellectual concerns about right and wrong. But this is much more practical in the sense of even, how shall I put it, from a therapeutic point of view, is that it's behavioural. We engage in the behaviours even if the mental processes are not quite there yet. Yeah? It's a training, remember. And this is the one way to see the way, the path, whichever word works for you, is that it is training. Yeah? I often mention this because I think it's such an important thing. I think particularly as Westerners who approach the teaching, um, we often come at it with what I call the myth of authenticity. That we have to have the authentic mental feeling in order to be able to do the right stuff. Actually, we've got to have, because we have this strange word in English, hypocrisy, that we actually have to have that full emotional quality there to engage in the behaviours that go with it. Well, the path, I'm afraid to say, ain't like that a lot of the time. For example, let's take the the virtue that was very much lauded in Buddhist societies, which is the virtue of generosity. Virtue of generosity, and that doesn't mean material things. If you look at the teachings on generosity, they're much more about the teachings on things like friendship as much as anything else. One of the greatest aspects of being generous is friendship. Time. Meta, again, something I'll talk about in a few days' time. This is one of the basic qualities that the Buddha is really trying to get us to develop towards ourselves and towards others. Meta, by the way, as I shall say, when is it? Monday, isn't it? When we do with this, meta is not loving kindness. That's rather sloppy, I think. I'm sorry to disabuse you of these things. (laughs) Metta is linked to the word mitta, to befriend. And actually, the best translation of metta is boundless friendliness. A boundless friendliness towards oneself and towards others. This is doable. I mean, friendliness is doable. You're not going to love everybody. But to be friendly towards them, to be respectful towards them, that is something that's within our human capacity to do. So we're developing really good qualities. And, you know, for example, let's take go back to my example of generosity. We could, um, let's say, wait for an extremely long time for the really expansive, authentic emotion of generosity to descend upon us. (laughs) Yeah, we could wait sometimes a whole of our life for it to happen. And uh, this practice is one about, you know, if you want to know what it feels like to be generous, be generous. You know, so the action becomes before the feeling. Where often we think the feeling has to come before the action. Yeah. Keep doing your acts of whatever virtue. I was just using generosity as one of the, you know, one of the good examples. 
but whatever virtue you select, keep doing it often enough, you might actually end up really genuinely experiencing it. Yeah. I always remember when I was in training, when I was in India, training with Tibetans, and there was one um, Tibetan teacher I was studying with who was being berated by uh, another Western monk who was saying to him, he said, you keep telling me to be compassionate, I don't feel compassionate. <laughs> and the teacher said to him, Feeling? What's feeling got to do with it? <laughs> Just be compassionate. <laughs> you know, so it's not about that. And it's these practical dimensions which the Buddha is really emphasizing in this. When we think of even the practices of the Brahma Viharas, what we're talking about is a form of mindfulness which is deliberately forming concepts within the mind which are a form of behavior. So we're directing our mind in a particular way, inclining our mind in a particular way. And, well, we certainly know this from the dukkering point of view, but this is from another point of view, from the development of wholesome virtues, in the Madhupindaka Sutta, which is the Honeybull Sutta, the Buddha basically says that however you incline the mind, that will become the shape of your life. However you incline your mind, that will become the shape of your life. So if we incline our minds through infatuation, aversion, and confusion, then we get lives which are full of infatuation, aversion, and confusion. If we incline our minds in terms of generosity, friendliness, and understanding, then we get a life which is shaped in that way. So this again is coming back to that third aspect of the tilakana, of the three characteristics, which is anatta. We couldn't possibly do that. We couldn't shape our lives by inclining our minds if it was somehow preset. If it was somehow already determined that this was you forever. Yeah. But somehow we feel that, don't we? On occasions, this is what I'm stuck with. This is my personality. I don't know if you do this in the States, but in England people will often say, well, that's the way I am. Yeah. <laughs> what that implies is that's the way I am and I can't possibly change. Yeah. And the Buddha is trying to make very clear to us in these early texts that we can always change. Yeah. Change is going to occur anyway. Yeah. How do you incline that change or generate that change in a direction that works in developing wholesome and skillful behaviors in your ordinary day-to-day -day existence? Yeah. And that is the litmus test. The litmus test of all of your practice is how you are in everyday life, in average, ordinary, everyday situations. Not when you're sitting in some meditation hall, not when you're on retreat. You know, it's how you are in everyday existence because what goes on in the meditation hall, what goes on in retreat, of course, is training. Yeah. That's why, in a sense, I think the English word practicing is very good. Yeah. 
practicing some equanimity. Well, see if you can be equanimous outside. When I was living in Sri Lanka, one of the places I used to stay, I had a meditation teacher, unfortunately, he's dead now, but when he always used to um, call in people for interview after they'd been uh, there for about a month and, and really settled in, and he would say to them things like, are you feeling settled? And they would go, yes, yes, yes. Feeling calmer? Yes. Really feeling so much calmer. So much benefit of being here. Yeah. Feeling a bit friendlier towards others? Oh, yes, I'm feeling... You know, people are my... And you'd get all this sort of stuff, and then they'd go, okay, go down to Kandy, which is the local chaotic Sri Lankan town. He said, if you're still like that, then you're getting somewhere. <laughs> you know, so sitting, basically, this is in the hill country in, in the middle of Sri Lanka, sitting in a, on the top of a hill, isolated from everywhere else, was not the challenge. The challenge was to be in ordinary life. And actually, when you look at the text, this is exactly what you find the bhikkhus and the Buddha doing, interacting with ordinary people on a daily basis interacting with them, not living lives of seclusion, cut off. If they are, and they do go and do that, that is training. That is not the end of it. Yeah. That is simply the training part. Of it. And what is the training in service of? The training is in service of the development of the understanding of tilakana, of the three characteristics. That is the content of what we are meant to get, that they are impermanent, that they are dukkha. And that dukkha, you know, in many ways, we could perhaps say, perhaps it's a little overstating it, but I'm going to say it anyway, is the world is structurally incapable of providing you with ultimate satisfaction. It's actually structurally incapable of doing it because it changes. <laughs> yeah. Don't look so miserable. It gets better than this. <laughs> because actually the ability to live with that knowledge itself makes it a completely different world. And let me say something about that word, word loka or world. The word loka, you know, we can misinterpret this and I think this often goes on again in popular texts on Buddhism. The word loka or world often seems to be referring to what's outside. It isn't. The world is the world of our minds through which all of that experience of the outside is filtered. Yeah. The world, of course there is stuff out there, there's never any denial of that. It's not the kind of form of philosophical idealism. It's saying that our world is the world that is imprinted with our minds. So if we imprint, if we see if we incline our minds with this greed, aversion, this infatuation, aversion and confusion, well, that's what we get. That's what we get. We get a world which is saturated with that and all of the psychology that's generated from it. If we incline our minds in other ways, in other words, see the world with the eye of kindness, with the eye of friendliness, then we get a world which perhaps reveals itself in a very different way. Yeah. That is really the meaning of that phrase right at the beginning of Dhammapada. You know, mind precedes all things. Yeah. Yeah, dependent on the way the mind is shaped, the way the mind is inclined, it depends on what story follows next. Yeah. What story is generated out of it. 
And the story, um, well, that can be seen as part of our sanya, you know, coming back to anatta, this is sanya, our ways of discriminating, our ways of perceiving the world, are actually perceived through stories. Yeah? Yeah. Through the stories that we tell ourselves, the narrative constructions that we generate. There's a lovely book by an English feminist novelist called Jeanette Winterson. I don't know if anybody's come across her. But she starts off of one of her novels, and she says uh, something like this. She says, I wake up in the morning and wonder which story to tell myself, the one about the happy childhood or the one about the unhappy childhood. <laughs> you know, and what follows from the day will then follow from the story. You know, another way of putting that, putting it more in a sense in philosophical and back in the Buddhist terms, is we're always perceiving the world through, world through a mood. Yeah, let's face it, you're always in a mood. <laughs> you cannot not be in a mood. You know, and our mood is what is part of our discriminating function, the way that we discriminate the world. And that mood is the way the mind imprints itself on the phenomena it encounters. Change that, you change your world. Two different moods, two different worlds. We can see this with, say, happiness and depression. Same world, two different minds, two different worlds, actually, in those cases. So this is about that kind of beginning to understand that process and see, of course, that the problem does not lie, and this again is part of the Buddha's emphasis in these early teachings, the problem doesn't just lie without. The problem lies within. The apprehension of what is there. The way that we take it. And this is not to deny, of course, that there are bad things that occur in the world. This is not that denial of that. But we can make even bad things so much more worse, so much worse. We can make good things really awful by the way that we apprehend them. Because if we apprehend them with a mind which is distorted, unwholesome, full of infatuation, aversion, and delusion or confusion, then that's what we get. We get more of it. Now, the beauty of this practical approach of the Buddha was said that it's in your hands to do something about that. It is in your hands. It's very, very much in your hands. Uh, so I think I'll throw in my next bit of controversy and see where we go from here, which is the goal, in many senses, as outlined by the Buddha in his final words, you know, everything, absolutely everything is impermanent, now get on with it. The goal really is equanimity. This is the goal. Not to be pushed out of balance by what is going on in the world. To be forced by reactive patterns to repeat over and over and over again. Here's your repetition. Sangsara. Claustrophobic. If I was putting it in modern psychological terms. It's a very claustrophobic feeling when we're trapped into a small number of reactive patterns towards the world. Constantly thrown off balance, 
literally and metaphorically, by the vagaries of the world. Yeah. We know that's what the world does. The world continues, and I'm using the world in the normal sense here, not in the technical Buddhist sense of loka. But the world in the normal sense is that fluctuating, evanescent stuff that's always happening. You know, the changes in political situations, the changes in climate, the changes in this, the changes in that. But are, and this is the question I think, and perhaps these are questions that have to arise for everybody out of these teachings, is how do you deal with that? How are you going to live with a life that is full of that movement? Yeah. That's the task again. Yeah. So I'm trying to put it to you in the kind of starkest terms I can here. You know, out of, I think, what the Buddha is saying in these early teachings. He's not, as I say, philosophizing about it. He's giving you a practical task. Yeah. How are you going to do it? How are you going to live? In fact, here's another question. I remember giving a talk in Cambridge Insight Meditation Centre last year. The title was, How do you want to live your life? And that, in a sense, is exactly the question that arises. How do you want to live your life? Do you want to live it being constantly off balance, out of balance, thrown out by this fluctuating, evanescent, changing world? Or do you want to live it almost like a ballet dancer with poise and balance in this world? There is a word that's used in the Abhidhamma tradition, which again is part of the early tradition here, which is a synonym for upekka. Upekka is the word which is usually translated as equanimity, and it's a perfectly good translation. The word in Pali for this other word that's used in the Abhidhamma material is tatramajatata. Tatramajatata, which is actually to be in the middle of. Now, I see that in two senses. It's to be in the middle of the sense, not being thrown off balance, but literally to be in the middle of life as well. Seated, balanced, poised in the middle of life without being thrown by what is happening in that way. And in that sense, from that poise and balance, just as within some of the martial arts, there is the ability to respond out of that. And that responsiveness, and this is again something I'll talk about in a couple of days' time, that responsiveness is out of friendliness and compassion as well. And out of a joyfulness, often something that often gets forgotten about in Buddhist circles. We're very good at talking about misery. (laughs) Not so good often talking about joy. But joy, as most of you will know in these early teachings, are part of the seven factors of awakening, the seven limbs of awakening. You know, it's there as part of the Brahma Viharas, you know, the appreciative joyousness um, that appreciates what's going on for others here. You know, so joyfulness is very much a part of it as well as the appreciation. And, and there's one um, Singhalese phrase which I often use now in, in teaching the Brahma Vihara says, you know, life is nothing but a play of joy and sorrow. That is what it is. It is a play of joy and sorrow. For most of it, it's not unmitigated sorrow and it's not unmitigated joy. It's a mixture of both and it's important to see that. 
And I think particularly in Buddhist circles, and I wasn't really, I was in a sense joking, but not joking, in saying that we can overemphasize the problems. Sometimes we have to come into an appreciative joy for ourselves as well. What is good in your life? You know, appreciate it. You know, appreciate it because also it can, and it is, well, I'm just not can, it is, it is fleeting. Yeah. The preciousness in any joyful moment is that it will change. Yeah. That we know that it will change. And as many of you will know, of course, that the this is something that's really celebrated in other forms of Buddhism, particularly Japanese Buddhism, where, for example, you know, the highest aspect of aesthetics is cherry blossom. Because cherry blossom is so evanescent. It's so kind of it's there and it's gone. And its beauty is in its briefness. Yeah. And again, this is what the Buddha is trying to get us to see in these early texts, to come back to not just the misery, but also the joyousness. There's, also, there's that balance within it that you would expect of looking at and balancing this. So, let me try and kind of sum up what we've got so far again, just to, so we don't get lost in, in kind of detail. What we've got is the figure of the Buddha in these early texts, and pretty haven't got, I've got very heavily annotated, as you can imagine, texts at home here. Um, but in these early texts, and I would be quoting you bits, more bits if I had them with me, um, what we get is the figure of the Buddha as a very, very practical teacher. Yeah. He's a practical guide. Yeah. He's a practical guide to getting us to see certain things, to hear certain things, and to reflect on certain things. And... I'll pause there a second because I think I just want to add another point in here, which is often when we look at practice, we often think of the practice as only being sitting on a meditation cushion or doing walking meditation. Yeah, that's practice. And then there's other stuff called study or theory. Yeah. Um, and almost I'm with a sort of, I don't know, almost a reversal of Western culture. We like to see anything as theoretical as somehow being beneath us or study as being somehow lesser than practice. The Buddha makes no such distinction. The understanding and the actual inquiry into the teachings, which we would probably call study, I don't like the word, is as important as sitting on a cushion. That's equally as important. Not more important, but equally as important as... Because actually he lays out the path in this way. The way he lays it out is, first of all, there is something called sutta mai panya. Sutta mai panya. Sutta is to hear something. It's with one T. It's not like sutta in uh, the suttas, the discourses, but it's related to it. But sutta is to hear something. First of all, the start of any inquiry is to receive it, isn't it? Yeah. Just like you're listening to me. Um, today it's in our world often more, more often than not reading something encountering it through reading 
these days might be listening to a Dharma talk from Dharma Seed or something like Dharma Seed or something like that. But there's that, got to be that initial impetus, the input. But next, which is really important, um, which is called Chinta Maipanya. Chinta means to reason through and analyze for yourself. But not out of kind of intellectual curiosity, but to connect it with experience. In other words, the question really at that stage is, does this make sense? Does this make sense at all? Does it make sense in terms of, and this is one of the things that the Buddha considered the most important, the authority of your experience? Not the authority coming from somewhere else, not from somebody sitting in front of you and telling you this is what you're going to experience, but does it make sense in terms of what you are at present experiencing. Now, in these early texts, this leads again, this is actually one of the worst mistranslations. Let me give you this one. I didn't give you this this morning. It's time I gave you another one. It's this word, sada. Usually appallingly translated as faith. Which puts it right back in the context of religion and theistic religion in particular but better translated as trust, confidence. But it's a trust or confidence and founded on something that you've already investigated and understood and experienced for yourself. Now, this trust or confidence, I just think, is nothing unusual. It's not like the blind faith that you see often within religious traditions. The trust or confidence that the Buddha really is encouraging is simply what I call pedagogic. It's to do with teaching and learning. You you can't start off learning anything by distrusting everything your teacher says to you. You've got to start somewhere. You can't kind of have an infinite regression of whys. You've got to have a starting block and inquire into that. And if that makes sense, then you might want to go a bit further. And if that makes sense, you might want to go a bit further still. And it's always based on already something understood, something already experienced in your life. Now that is what this is about. This is what sada is about. This is not faith in subscription to a set of propositions that you haven't experienced, but in something that you have already contacted in your own average experience and understood about your own life, then you inquire. So it's an unfolding inquiry. And this is also what chinta is about. You know, the chinta is about establishing that base of, of inquiry so that you can inquire further. That which you have heard, that which you have understood and inquired into, you then practice or cultivate, which is bhavana my panya. And literally the words means the insight that arises through hearing, the insight that arises through inquiry, and the insight that arises through cultivation. That's what it means. Panya, by the way, this other term, I'm probably destroying too many sacred cows in one day today, but never mind. Panya does not mean wisdom. It means understanding or insight. 
wisdom, uh, as a fellow colleague, when I was working at Bristol University, a um, fellow colleague of mine actually wrote a book, and he said that in the Indian tradition, tradition panya or prajna is all too common. Understanding or insight is very rare. Because yeah. actually, lots of uh, different traditions argue about their wisdom, the wisdom that's going on. How, how often do they have real understanding or insight? So it's insight and understanding, which is the goal in many senses. But how we understand it, oh, well, I'll come on to that at another point. But there are these three approaches, okay? Sutta, Chinta, Bhavana. Yeah. These three approaches. That is the path. That is the way. That is the template for the inquiry that the Buddha gives. Yeah. And he does it in many different ways. I'm just giving you one of the very simple ways. But he says this again and again and again through the texts. That there's this three, this, this basically three-pointed approach to you know, being integrated into genuine what we would call practice. That it's not just bhavana, it's not just sitting. It's not just walking. It's doing these other things. Actually being involved in opening out your field of inquiry. So this is what's also going on in these early texts. I think what time we've got. Perhaps I can get on to the next topic. So, anatta. How are we going to understand this one? Well, I've given you the most basic element of that. Anatta is really the lack of fixed self. <coughs> I hope you're still with me and still awake, because I want to take it right back to what I was talking about this morning in relationship to the Indian tradition. The Indian tradition speaks about Atman. Remember? This was the essence of the individual. This was the very, you know, kind of, this is the kernel of what represented the individual, their real self. Yeah. And actually, in a lot of kind of New Ageism, I hear people going out in search of their real selves. <laughs> What is a real self? Well, I came across years ago, I came across a um, greetings card. It was a birthday card for somebody. And funny enough, I sent it to a friend with exactly the same name. And it was entitled, Stanley goes to the Himalaya in search of his real self. And you've got this figure with glasses on and a backpack on, going up a mountain. And at the top of the mountain is standing a guy in a pinstripe suit with a briefcase who looks exactly like him. <laughs> So looking for real selves <laughs> could be a bit of a disappointment. <laughs> now, I'm only saying that because what the Buddha is saying, there is no fixed self. Andy Olensky uses a term which I've now adopted myself, which I think is a really good one, is the self is a verb. Yeah. It's not a thing. You know, we're getting away from things into processes. And if there's one defining characteristic of the early text, which somehow has fallen through the net of a lot of the tradition, is that we're talking in terms of processes. We're not talking in terms of things. Buddhist languages in general tend to talk more in verbs than they do in nouns. Yeah. So we find much more verb constructions and many, many more declensions of those verbs um, in terms of these languages than we do, say, in English, which is more noun-based than it is verb-based. Um, 
And so there's a big difference, in a sense, between that. And as we know, every language really distinguishes the world in a different way. And this is very much the case with these classical languages like Pali and Sanskrit, um, which use these very much verb-based constructions with all of the case declensions that you get in classical languages. You know, so, for example, in Pali and Sanskrit, you get eight verb-case declensions, um, as opposed even to Latin, which has seven. You know, so they're very much verb-based languages. So what is this indicating? Well, it's indicating what the way that the Buddha is trying to get us to see the world, which is based actually on the first of those um, three characteristics. The world is process. The world is process. We are one of the processes within the world. We're not outside of that. Our world, the world of our senses, the world of our minds... You know, is process itself. You know, he is really the first process thinker in many senses to try and get us to see that so that we're not dealing with things. Now, the Artman, I haven't got it up on the board, but the Artman, this term in Sanskrit is very much an unchanging phenomena. This is the way it's defined. An unchanging phenomena within the person. I was joking about it, but in a sense it represents the real self of the individual. And that real self is somehow connected to the unchanging aspect of the universe which is entitled Brahman. Now, Brahman isn't God. It's not theistic, although it does in later traditions, in Hindu traditions, become more theistic. In these early traditions, it's simply the unchanging essence of the universe. That is all it is. And somehow the individual is connected to that. A wonderfully consolatory idea, isn't it? It's wonder- I mean, I can understand why this is such an appealing idea. You know, lovely idea. You're connected to everything. I see this basically infecting and infiltrating Buddhism and Buddhist practice and Buddhist understanding. That, you know, it's kind of aren't we all one phenomena? Until that other one disagrees with you. (laughs) (laughs) Which invariably happens at some point. So this is a very nice idea. It's a very consolatory idea, but the Buddha just doesn't see it in practice. It's very much that if we're to start to talk about the self, and this is where these five khandhas come in, um, the, khand, the word khandha is an interesting word. It's often translated as aggregates. It literally just means lumps. <laughs> you know, these things that can be lumped together. You know, so the first lumping is all the corporeal processes, you know, which we entitle rupa. Now, this, again, I'm not going to give you the big story, but actually, again, this word he's using, Kanda, connects with a lot of early Indian thinking here. And again, he's making use of it and slightly parodying it because it's used in a very, um, how would I put it, in a very um, elevated sense in Brahminical philosophy, whereas the Buddha goes and uses the crudest sense of it. It's a lump. So he's deliberately doing that. He's saying these are just things that are aggregated together or clumped together or lumped together 
that we can talk about. And these are the only sensible, meaningful ways that we can talk of being a self. Yeah. They're not meant to be exhaustive. If, if you want the exhaustive analysis of this, go and look at the Abhidharma. Yeah. The exhaustive analysis of the Khandas is there in the Abhidharma, this tradition which is also part of the Tipitaka, of the, you know, the three baskets, the, the three aspects of the teaching. But you know, there you get, if you really want to know what's going on in terms of the self, you get 52 mental factors and 121 forms of consciousness plus loads and loads of you know, 28, matter, you know, 28 physical aspects as well that are going on. If you want a real analysis, that's it. Now, the Buddha doesn't do that, although many of the Abhidhamma terms are terms which occur in the Nikayas. What he says is, any meaningful talk about what it is to be a self can only be spelled out in terms of these five processes. The first process... Now, I'm having a little conversation over lunch about this, or lunchtime about this. These appear to be linear, the way they're set up in teaching. Always beware of anything linear going on in early Buddhist texts. They're not. It's only a matter, again, of teaching it. You know, it's not a matter of, you know, Rupa is first, and then it's followed finally by so-called consciousness, and then between you've got the other three khandhas going on. It's actually that they're all interacting together. So all five processes are occurring simultaneously. And if you don't get that, it seems a very reductionistic, almost derogatory process. It just doesn't make sense in terms of experience. So these five processes, let me give them to you, but don't hear them as linear, please. The first is all the material processes that go to make up. Nothing remaining the same within it going back to the very first of those things. Nothing is going to be static. You know, I find this out every morning I look in the mirror. <laughs> it hasn't remained static. <laughs> you know, it's changed yet again. Um, so physical processes are not under our control. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if they were? But they're not. Physical processes are not under our control. Um, any kind of condition for being a real self, and this is argued in a number of places in the text, is that if it was a real self, it would have real control. Yeah. It would be a bit like um, the phrase that's used often in psychology, which is the homunculus in the head. You know, it's a bit like the crane driver in the crane. You know, the crane driver directs where the limbs of the crane are going. You know, we don't a lot of the time. Our bodies do peculiar things to us. You know, they don't act as we want them to. You know, they're doing bodily things a lot of the time. Um, so we're not under control in that sense. And we desperately try to be. Um, we live, and it's probably it's extremely laudable to do it, we try to live healthier lives, but even if we do that, we still get sick. Yeah. even if it's picking up a common cold or the influenza or something like that, we still get sick. And so it's not under our control. Then we have this other term, and shall I get rid of these and write these up? I think I'm going to dot them over the board so we don't get a linear process. So we've got Rupa. Literally, the word of the thing, rupa, means form. 
something which is formed in a way and forming too. So it's in process. Then just to non-linearize it, I'll put Vedana at the bottom. Vedana, um, well, translation of this, the literal translation of it is feeling, which is very accurate. This is one other dimension of what it means to be a human being, is that we possess these bare feelings. And the feelings are initially of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither. Nice commentary, isn't it? <laughs> Just to lighten the thought. I probably I should sign sing along. <laughs> so Vedana is these six forms, pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neither of both physical and mental stuff that's happening for us. Now, people are often perplexed by what is a neither pleasant nor unpleasant experience. Well, it's the dead zones on your body. Let's take if you take it as a physical sense. There are bodies which you will very clearly, even at this moment of time, if you just quickly scanned your body, you would go, that's a pleasant sensation or that's an unpleasant sensation. But then there'll be bits that you're not even conscious of. And one classic example I like to use is your earlobes. <laughs> now, you've probably become conscious of them now. <laughs> of your earlobes, but actually what neither pleasant nor unpleasant is the absence of sensation. It's the actual absence of a sensation there. So we get pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations attached to both physical and mental experience and also to neither pleasant or unpleasant physical. So we notice those thought patterns, for example, which have a pleasant tone to them because we like to keep them around. You know, if it's a happier thought, we want to hold on to that thought. If it's an unpleasant one, like your deep sense of anxiety, perhaps, or fear, you want to get rid of it. You don't want to know about it. Um, so again, we're back into the craving and aversion. Again, craving to hold on to certain experiences, aversive to other experiences, which we want to get rid of and, and detach ourselves from. However, that isn't the end of the story. Because out of pleasantness, unpleasantness, there's a connectivity with this. Sankara. So actually the Vedana will drag, drag in the sankharas of emotion. Yeah. So actually, our emotions are off, well, they're, they're aspects are forming our experience. They're already formed, many of them. And actually, our emotions are deep set narrative structures which rationalize experience. This is what emotion is. Um, I completely disagree with anybody who wants to argue that emotion is irrational. Emotion is completely rational. It has its own logic about the rationalization of our experience. But it's a rationalization of something I find pleasant or unpleasant. In other words, what I'm saying is you're going to tell yourself big stories about pleasant or unpleasant experience. 
Now, that's what we're doing. We're telling ourselves stories all the time. That's the main job of sankharas, tell ourselves stories. Yeah. Sankharas that infect every aspect of our sense of being in the world. Yeah. That's what they're doing. So, actually, most of our perception, um, which is another term, I'm going to join these all up in a second, sanya, which is a big one, Most of our perceptual experiences are coloured by deep narrative structures. Which means, if they're coloured by deep narrative structures, I'm going to pose a cynical question. Do you experience anything new? Do you actually experience anything new? All you're doing is reconnecting with past experience in the present moment. It's already perceived, in a sense in that process. Now, I think this connects actually with some scientific um, psychological research that's been done on the business of why the perception of time appears to speed up the older you get. It's because you're not encountering anything new. Children, and that sense of almost the timelessness of childhood, is because often there's a sense of curiosity and interest and connecting with something which is new in experience. Whereas... In a sense, we've been there, done it, and seen it as we get older. And so the experience of time contracts, and it gets faster for us. This is why sometimes meditation retreats can seem very long. Because yeah. you're actually opening up experience again to reperceive and actually igniting something that's being lost often, if you're really engaged in this process, igniting curiosity, igniting interest in what's ha- actually happening. Yeah. So it's moving from a position of, in a sense, already knowing to a position of not knowing. Yeah. And it's only in that position of not knowing do we open ourselves to what's really going on. Yeah. So we're not already contracting around already known things. So the emotions here, for example, which are sankharas, the sankhara, our sankharas affect our perceptions, which also affect our, the way that we feel about things, as pleasant or unpleasant, which then form further sankharas. Yeah. So this is going round in a lovely, vicious circle. Here. This is what's going on. And so you can break, break this circle, then you're trapped in this cycle, which also will include the other element, the last element, which I'm going to write on the board in a second. It's all part of it, because this is, in a sense, a definition of one dimension of sangsara. This is a selfing, sangsaric process. So this is going around in a circle just as the whole sense of what we're perceiving is going around in a circle. Yeah. Now, if I want to leave you with an image, it's not a very attractive image here, but if I want to leave you with an image, it's not as bad as the incontinent one, don't worry. <laughs> but if I want to leave you with an image here, it's of entrapment. Sangsara and this, this whole process, and this is why... Actually, the Buddha describes this as the five aggregates of dukkha. 
the five aggregates of grasping. Now, when we're grasping, there is dukkha arising out of this, and it's creating yet more dukkha, and it's going around. You know, every time we try to grasp after the, any of these dimensions as being us, then we're creating it, either singly, you know, any of these elements within it, or collectively as well. So we're always trying to create a sense of something fixed out of something which is changing. And the final aspect, I'm going to say some more about Vinyana, but I just want to put this, about Sanya, but I want to put Vinyana up on the board as well. Oops. Sorry, dots in the wrong place. Vinyana, usually translated as consciousness, but it's more cognizance. Because that also is, like Vedana, is not just bare, but it also has the elements of sankhara and perception involved in it. So it's, it's the consciousness and the thinking which is involved in these, which is embodied and never not embodied, really interesting what the Buddha says about this in the early texts, particularly if any of you know anything about Mahayana Buddhism, which almost talks about consciousness in the sense of being a primal base, being ultimately um, that which is reborn, for example, in Tibetan tradition, in the Bardo. You know, the Bardo traditions are all about the dimension of consciousness being reborn into another situation. None of this is basically coherent with the early texts. It's not what the Buddha is saying in these early texts. He's saying that all vinyana, all consciousness or cognizance is an embodied cognizance. All cognizance, all consciousness is always embodied cognizance or consciousness in the early texts. And in fact, in in the Anguttara Nikaya, it's a very interesting little bit, the Buddha says... He who has no mindfulness of body has no mindfulness. It's a very interesting remark. He who has no mindfulness of the body, of rupa, has no mindfulness. That's in the Anguttara Nikaya. I think it's in either the twos or threes in the Anguttara Nikaya. So here's the basic map. And the reason why I've kind of scattered them over the board, A, to get over that linear process, but they're also firing all together. If you want to see them as a kind of flow chart, they're flowing together, mixed together. Sanya is a very, very important one, particularly as infected by the narratives of Sankara, which are constantly dominating the way that we perceive. Now, another trans- addition to the translation of Sanya as perception is discrimination. It's the ability to s- discriminate things. So there are certain capacities which are included under the function of sanya, which are also um, well, highly important and highly significant to being human. One of them is memory. The other is language. Yeah. So language is an important function of sanya, and memory, obviously, if we are to use language, we need memory. There's no point. I mean, one definition, an Abhidhamma, it's not actually a Nikaya definition, but one definition of Sanya is the ability to take an object and mark it for recognition. So we're marking objects. 
and we're marking them often with linguistic markers. In fact, that's the most common way that we mark things, with linguistic markers. But it's no good having a linguistic marker if you can't remember how you've marked it. So the ability to remember is an absolutely important function of this. Also, if you want a self, this is where the burden of it falls. Perception discrimination. Memory. What is the self other than the ability to remember past events and connect them up with present time experience? That is what a self basically is. Now, that it is not a fixed self is, again, I'd get you to examine this in your experience, is often um, exemplified by the fact that obviously your memory of your life is not continuous. It's fragmentary, isn't it? You know, it's fragmentary, what you can remember. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can remember stuff from early childhood, but not a lot. I can remember stuff from adolescence. I can remember stuff from you know, my 20s and 30s and so on and so forth. But sometimes I can't remember what I did last week. <laughs> yeah. um, so our sense of who we are is actually fragmentary. and Bits will drop out of the picture and other bits will come in at times. Now, the reason why it is not no-self, but this is representing what is not-self, any of these functions, is that, of course, in degenerative brain diseases such as dementia and Alzheimer's, that's exactly what goes, memory. And it's a terrifying experience for most people because they literally can't remember who they are any longer. Because there's no ability often to, well, so there's loss of short-term memory, but eventually long-term memory goes. The ability to connect up aspects of experience to, in a sense, construct a sense of I. Now, I don't think the Buddha is recommending us to be like that. You know, he's not recommending us to be, in a sense, having no absolute sense of self. This is about, again, I would say the corrective, not no self, what is not self, and how we hold that self sense of what is not self. How do we, in other words, hold the selfing process? Are you deeply attached and grasping after the selfing process? Or is there a sense of lightness of touch that can hold it? You know, can you be a self without being egotistical? This is not a word that's used, by the way, the word ego in any, there's no Pali word for it. It's, Kind of Freud digs it out of Latin. Yeah. So here we have this sense of a challenge of how it is to be a selfing process without being selfish. Yeah. That's the challenge, not to become a vacuous being. <laughs> you know, I've often felt um, that the teaching of no self is actually positively dangerous to be quite honest. You know, particularly with people who have a fragile sense of who and what they are anyway, and then suddenly to be told they have no self could be quite destructive. Yeah. Or, even if you're fairly balanced, you know, to be suddenly confronted and told you've got no self is, well, I came in with one, where's it gone? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've just left with a self-shaped hole. <laughs> So, vinyana, this is also implicated in 
the process. Now, vinyana, as you heard me just lightly touch on the abhidharma, um, you know, vinyana or chitta, often these two words are used synonymously. Sometimes chitta is used for the sense of mind over all, but sometimes it's used synonymously just as being consciousness or cognizance or something. So it's used in two senses. And I do make a plea for pronouncing it as chitta rather than cheetah. <laughs> I, I have visions of things bounding over the South African veld. <laughs> my chitta or my cheetah just got away. <laughs> so... Uh, these two words, chitta and vinyana, are actually synonymous words as they're used generally in the Nikaya material, in this early material. And vinyana is connected with the processes, the thinking processes of discriminating and what the narrative structures or the habits or the formations that come into play in any consciousness of something. You know? So I'm very rarely just conscious of something. I'm conscious of it as being this, that, and with a certain feeling about it, the Vedana, and with a certain narrative associated around the like or the disliking of it. You know, if, it's, if it's, in a sense, a dead zone, which is what I was talking about in relationship to the neither, neither um, pleasant or unpleasant, then in a way it connects with confusion or delusion because I'm not even noticing it. Yeah. What we usually notice in most of our experience is that which we like and that which we dislike. So that is very primary in terms of physical and all these mental processes. Yeah. Well, Nama is this. This is Nama. You know, Nama just means name in... in um, in Pali and Sanskrit, actually. And nama is used just to describe any of the mental processes, any mental processes that are going on. Would you also call sankara uh, conceptualization? That's the word I've... Conceptualization, that's not a bad one. Yeah, I've come across that as well. It's, that's actually okay. It's, again, it's part of the story. It's like a lot of these words. It'll give you part of the story. Because sankaras are narrative conceptualizations of certain... Um, experiences which get repeated. Yeah. Not always negatively. No. You know, bear in mind, I said, they can be good habits or they can be bad habits, but they're habits. Yeah. I think we've got into question and answers, haven't we? <laughs> no, no, please. That's, that's... You've talked a lot about, uh, touched on Western psychology. Is, mm -hmm. is that an important element to add in your goal to make this more real in the West, or is the traditional psychotherapeutic model a distraction from or an opposition to what you've been teaching today? Well, as you probably know, therapies are vast and widespread in their differences and their approaches. There is um, a whole group, one of which I'm deeply involved in, of therapies which are within a family, in a sense, and they are basically the mindfulness-based applications that you find. And they are drawing on traditional Buddhist understandings, but in a modern, modern therapeutic model. So, for example, you know, what I'm particularly involved in, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, 
um, is actually using the cognitive therapy elements out of you know, the development of Beck's work to then use together with the mindfulness to create a quite powerful package to be able to help people with, for example, severe depression. Um, and this has been shown through a lot of research to be very effective and effective and, not m and more effective than drug <laughs> therapy, particularly for depressive relapse um, here. So there's quite a continuing body of research being um, um, developed out of that. Then there is things like um, dialectical behaviour therapy, ACT as well, acceptance and commitment therapy. All of these are mindfulness-based applications and use an MBSR, of course, which is really the precursor of most of them, uh, with John Kabat-Zinn, um, which are using these models. And I think sometimes Western, Western models of mind are not in contradiction to what's going on within Buddhist models of mind. Um, they just come at it often from a different angle. I mean, I know this because on, on our master's course where I teach, um, often the pe people who are really specialist in cognitive therapy and cognitive science sit in on my sessions on Buddhist psychology, and some of them are saying, this is exactly what we're saying. It's just being different language being used about it. It's exactly the same stuff. And so there is a resonance there. There's certainly a resonance. However, if I look, say, towards traditional psychodynamic theory, then I see vast disparities between some psychodynamic theory, and again, it's a broad church in a sense, psychodynamic theory, but say within traditional Freudianism, things that Freud is deeply suspicious of, such as emptying the contents of the unconscious out, that's exactly what we're trying to do in Buddhist practice and in Buddhist psychology, is actually to see deeply repressed material and to be, have the ability to let it go, or to let you go, actually, is a better phrase of putting it. <laughs> So I think, yeah, it depends. I mean, it's, it's such a vast area, I wouldn't like to comment on every form, but certainly there are a lot of resonances within this, these approaches. Um, well, I've got two questions. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and maybe I'm jumping the gun, and maybe I'll, if so, then you can address them later. Um, what do you think of ideas that some teachers have talked about, you know, like timeless awareness, the deathless, the unconditioned? Okay. It sounds like yeah. <laughs> pretty metaphysical stuff to me. So, yeah, yeah. And, and the other question is on jhana, and this is on the Visuddhimagga version of jhana, which involves, <clears throat> well, basically getting to a place where you have no bodily awareness. Sounds like that's not something you're in favor of, so mm. maybe you could address these. Oh, yes. <laughs> These are my favorites. <laughs> the, the, one, the, the, first, the first question about the kind of phrases you find, like the unborn and the deathless and things like this, which are made much of, actually, by a lot of Western teachers. I can only give my perspective on it, so I'll say for what it's worth, is, first of all, I make the point that that passage or the passages on the unborn and the deathless, the uncreated, the unborn, and all the rest of it, and it goes on. I've actually, in fact, I can quote it for you. I've got it quoted at the back of a paper I wrote. Okay, this is, this is the passage for anybody who doesn't know it. And it comes, there's only, two, there's only two citations of it in the whole canon. And it's exactly the same in both citations. One is in the Itavutaka, and one is in the Udana. Both of these are in the Kudaka Nikaya. 
in the, what I called the odds and sods this morning, the little bits that couldn't be collected into the other. And this is the passage. There is a not born and not constructed and not made. If there was not that not born, not made, not constructed, there would be no escape from what is born, become, made, constructed. The stepping out from that, the peaceful, beyond reasoning, everlasting, the not born, the non-produced, the sorrowless that is void of stain, the cessation of states linked to suffering, the stilling of construction is bliss. That's the whole passage. Two citations in the whole of the canon. That's 6,000 suttas. Um, but I think it is canonical I don't think it is an insertion I'd say that the first thing about it is but what I would say is is that from the majority of people and again this is very much my perspective who interpret this they interpret it exactly in what you're saying is a metaphysical way as if this is some kind of transcendent state that the Buddha is talking about Again, I think they miss the point of the language that's being used and the way in, in Pali, for example, you make negations. You make negations in a particular way to make the opposite point. Yeah. That the not born is also the born. Yeah. It's, it's somehow peculiar. So let me go back a second and, and try and make this clear because it's, it's quite a difficult one to deal with. It's dealing very much with the self, from start off. And interpreters, not just contemporary interpreters, have interpreted this often as being the occasion, for example, for a transcendental self, a real self which exists, and the Buddha and the Arahants and people like this somehow have some kind of mystical aspect to a dimension of experience that you and I don't have access to at this moment in time. I think it's quite simple what the Buddha is saying here. If you read the passage in context, and you read it and put the passage in context with other passages in the text, you've got to understand the teaching on not-self. If there is no fixed self, here's a question for you. What is it that dies? There is a not-self. There is a no-self to die. It's only that which is, in a sense, produced, constructed which is perm- considered to be permanent, that can die. Yeah, that's what we're saying. So actually this language only makes sense if you're already positing something which is fixed. And the Buddha is denying anything that is fixed. So, I mean, as I, as I wrote, I might as well just read you what I wrote here, because I think it's, um, I can't really say it any better here, is that... This declaration sometimes being understood as a possible reference to being or a reality in itself, existing beyond or behind the appearance of change. Now, I don't think that's what the case is. It leads to speculation that the Buddha is looking at some transcendental reality, an absolute, an unconditioned reality. But the words of, of the Buddha, when understood in his own terms, again, the historical terms in which he's making these statements, it's clear that he's speaking of dismantling the constructions of greed, aversion, and delusion. Death is only present when there is greed, aversion, and delusion there. Now, why I say that is because there is another figure who you all know, quite, probably quite familiar with in real life and sometimes just through the text. This figure is called Mara. 
you know what the literal translation of the word Mara means? Death. It literally means the killer. So, what it's saying is that greed, aversion, and delusion, I'm just using conventional terms, greed, aversion, and delusion are that which kill life. When there is no greed, aversion, and delusion, there is life. Not a transcendental reality, but just real life experienced differently. Not through that stultifying killer that keeps on killing our experience. Every time, as soon as desire is inserted into our experience, we've somehow killed the experience. But in the thought that we're intensifying it. Yeah. That is the, that's the great temptation of Mara. Could you say that again? <laughs> oh, I'll see if I can. <laughs> well, I'll go back to Mara again. I'm just to start from that because then I can follow, work my train of thought through it again. I mean, Mara is considered to be the killer. So it's that which is killing life. So Mara is often associated with these three functions, greed, aversion, and delusion. So... For example, in the text, when you find Mara talking to the Buddha, he's always tempting the Buddha in some way, usually through some form of infatuation, some desire, saying, you should do this or you shouldn't do this. You know, greed and aversion. And that's always trying to get him to do that. If we follow through on that, now often, and I'm just thinking in terms of our ordinary experience, if we often follow through on our desires, we think we're somehow going to get pleasurable, intensified experience. But somehow, actually, we're no longer with the experience. We're just with the desire. We've killed the actual experience. It's like expectation. Something I often say about um, when we're engaged in meditation. When you sit in meditation and you're expecting something to happen, you often lose sight of what actually is happening. You kind of kill the experience again. So the deathless is not referring to some transcendental state, but the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. Because then we live life, as Blake says, you know, um, the immortality in the moment. Immortality isn't an endless sense of time. Immortality, or a deathless state, is in really intensely experience that moment as if for the first time. When you're really with it. That's an opening to the wondrousness of experience. It's the opposite of Mara. It's life. Yeah. That's really, I think, what's going on in that passage. There. Now, I could give you all kinds of linguistic reasons. I was going to go into that, but I don't think I will, as to why. Actually, it doesn't even work in the language. You know, um, it, when you understand the Pali, what most people try to argue for this passage. Here. <laughs> Yet, all kinds of, I think transcendental, metaphysical views are based on a misreading of this passage. Often. Or oh, they turn into Advaita. Sort of, uh, Ad, get into Advaita. Yeah. Advaita. Mike. Microphone. But I didn't answer your second question. Yeah, this is on Jhana. Jhana, okay. Yeah, the, uh, I, both, both are, in fact, from... Some people's perspective, both are seen as maybe Hindu mm. importations. Yes, I think that. I mean, jhana practice is quite clear that something like jhana practice was going on 
Certainly with the Hindu teachers, um, for example, that the Buddha so-called studied under, and there seems to be that within the Arya Parayasana Sutta, the Sutta of the Noble Search, that he seems to have experienced and moved within particular types of jhanic experience. But it's interesting that he leaves both of these teachers having experienced the ultimate of what they have to offer and says, I will not take on disciples, I will not follow this group because ultimately I do not see liberation in this. There is no liberation in, in simple jhanic states. I certainly see a lot of elevation and reintroduction of Hindu ideas in this. I also see a lot of monasticism in the pushing of this. There's a very good book I could point people to. It's called The Origin of Buddhist Meditation. It's by somebody called Alexander Wynne, who's a, a student of Richard Gombrich. He tries to make the case in this particular book that the types of experience, the concentration experiences that the disciples of the Buddha seem to be getting are actually much, much more mundane than the tradition points out. Yeah. Um, and there's something I... This is, again, personal in the sense of the way I see this. Is there something about the holding on to power within monastic contexts if you keep on upping the bar to have these extraordinary, extraordinary experiences that actually don't seem to me to hold that much value in terms of the liberative process? and saying that you must attain these before you can even enter into doing Vipassana. You know, it seems to me that it's a, it's, a, it's a form of the power that often you see within religious traditions where the goal becomes certainly outside of the realm of ordinary people. Yet, in the Buddha's context, it's really interesting that you know, all of these people are doing this stuff all the time. You know, they're gaining insight, they're gaining awareness, they're gaining jhana states, and they're gaining liberation showing that, not that it's easy, but that also it's not this massive uphill, almost myth of Sisyphus thing of pushing the boulder uphill all the time um, that often the monastic traditions put it out as. Another aspect of jhana practice which I feel that is um, problematic, certainly in a Western context, is it buys into competitivism. Yeah, it buys into a very competitive spirit even if it's only with yourself, you know, to get these states. Yeah. But the actual position of jhanas in the early texts is very equivocal, it's very mixed, you know, as far as I can read it, within the early texts. I mean, personally, personally speaking, I can say I have absolutely no interest in jhana practice ever. It just didn't seem worth the effort for most of what was gained out of it, ultimately. But, you know, that's a very personal reflection on that. Finally, just because that thought about jhana uh, was triggered by your phrase that when there's no mindfulness of the body, there's no mindfulness. Mm. So, 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 Yeah. I mean, that's a very key phrase for me because I think this is something that, again, even traditional Buddhism has lost sight of, is actually our embodiment a real deep sense of embodiment. Um, Theravada perhaps not so much so as some of the other traditions because it still often retains this walking meditation tradition and sometimes body scanning as well, you know, certainly within the kind of Ubakin tradition and Goenka traditions and that. You have, still have sense of the body within it. But within a lot of forms of Buddhism, the body has almost been written out. And mindfulness is something that you have is literally to do with the mind. 
Yet I find this phrase so powerful that he who does not have mindfulness of the body does not have mindfulness. In other words, we actually have to inhabit our corporeal existence. Quite clearly the Buddha is saying within this framework that all of this mental stuff does not take place without this. Does not take place without rupa. It's not a disembodied experience. It's very much an embodied experience. Um, so I find that a very powerful phrase to use. And, and jhana and that sense of disembodiment that comes out, I can't see the purpose of it. I mean, I really just do not. Other than perhaps the sense that, of self that you get from it might make you start to then, or the, the lack of the sense of self you get from it, might make you investigate the notion of self a much deeper on a much deeper level. That's the only thing I can think of. Um, is this on? Yeah, I can okay. hear you. Uh, before my question, just a comment on your last answer. There's some, somewhere in the middle of Gill's book, there's a distinction between spirituality, uses the metaphor of climbing a mountain, and spirituality uses the metaphor of riding gracefully down a river. Mm. And you just reminded me of that. Right. So, okay. But my question uh, is, what would you say to a relatively young person whose life has, uh, what would you emphasize or not emphasize in Buddhism to, to a young person whose major problem is that their life has been characterized by a lot of instability and a lot of disturbing change? Because it seems to me then if you say to this person, well, the, the point of Buddhism is that life is always changing, that's going to be turn off. They're going to they're go away. But there must be some other element of uh, Buddhism that you would then introduce first, and then you'd have to find some positive way of life is changing. So it's a, it's a tactical question, I guess. <laughs> okay. I suppose the first thing I would say to that, I probably wouldn't even try to talk to them about Buddhism. I mean, that's the first obvious thing for me, because I think the most powerful thing, particularly with working with young people, is experience. To get them to do things. To get them to do, even if it's extremely short, some kind of practice of something. To see what they, to see what they experience out of it. Even if it's, you know, somebody, a kid sits down and says, well, actually I can't do this, my mind is all over the place. You've got somewhere to start then. You've got somewhere to start to talk, to examine what's going on for them and to open it up. So I think in terms of tactical ways of doing that and introducing it to young people, this is, actually we have a project in Oxford which is Mindfulness in Schools. And we have a Mindfulness in Schools project. We're working actually with very young children. Yeah, so. taking a course in this. Okay, right. I, I work as a substitute teacher. So right. Yeah. Interesting. And so there's, there's quite a lot of work going on in doing this. And for example, the kind of meditation practices you do, you modify them, you break them down, you make them fun, you introduce jokes into them. You know, basically you play with the kind of kids' attention span that they have and the wish to be entertained a lot, but still getting something out of it. And so far, all the research that I've seen coming out of it is being really quite successful. Um, but you do have to go through a lot of modifications. I think the worst thing you could possibly do is talk about Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so. I just want to ask you one question. This process of the root, the whole, the heaps as they're moving, mm-hmm. that is, that creates Mara, right? That, that movement is when the memory and the, 
perception and the feeling all doing its movement. Mara arises out of that. And There's Mara. There's nowhere else other than the Sankaras. Mara is not something external. You know, it's the coming together of certain perceptual processes and Sankaras, ways of doing things, habituations, you know, proclivities of behavior that arise. And one of the things you have to remember is that we're deeply, deeply conditioned. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the first things that the Buddha really talks about is we're, the, we're conditioned beings. And so we, the lives that we have arise out of our conditionings. And so even when we're on the path, the way, actually when it gets tough, these conditions re-arise. They become very, how should I put it, they become very attractive because they seem to require less effort. Yeah. And you could put this down even to the neuroscience because you know, neuroscience, you, you know, literally the neural pathways, you have very deep, in a sense, grooves in the mind, which if you haven't completely eradicated them, set up new neural pathways, which in a sense is partly what we're doing, is setting up different proclivities of behavior and ways of doing things and more receptiveness, then when the going gets tough, often Mara, that's the metaphor, reasserts itself because those neural pathways are still powerful. So even on, as a Buddha, as the last part of his life, yeah. He says, I, rec- I recognize you, Mara. Yeah. Not like it's some, some, yeah, okay. That's right. I recognize you, Mara, because it's recognizing the tendencies for habits to re-arise. Remember, he's having that conversation all the way through his life, you know, just as we do. You know, and I find it very interesting that's even occurring towards the end of his life, yeah. that conversation. <coughs> yeah. So that, again, comes back to something I was saying earlier on today, that it makes it seem to me that you know, awakening isn't a big bang process. It's an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing process. I mean, sorry, I keep using the same word again, but it's an ongoing process. It's an ongoing engagement with it. And at, at certain points when things get tough, like the Buddha's old and sick, it will come back again. Now, because of his training, because of his experience and that, then Mara can be you know, dropped. He says, you know, oh, don't bother me, Mara. I'm not going to be too here long, for too much longer, you know. <laughs> kind of joking about it. But there is that sort of sense of, well, these patterns can reinsert themselves. We know that very much from our own experience. If we think about it, if you've got a deeply ingrained habit, addiction, problem, or whatever it might be, you might feel you've overcome it and got to a point, and then something hard happens, and you're back into it again. Back into doing it again. And that's because those patterns so reassert themselves so quickly back in our experience. But in Buddhist psychological terms, it's nothing other than the process of Sankara Sanya Vedana. Unpleasant experience give rise to certain forms of perception and certain narratives that become involved. You've answered a question I had. You said there's 6,000 sutras, I think you said. And my question is, what is the breadth and scope of this subject? Say one wants to just tackle the sutras in India, go to India. Do you read all of them? Do you pare them down? Do you, are there some valid and some not valid? Is there, what, can you just give a sense of the, the breadth of it? Because I mean, obviously you're not going to read them all, I guess, but well, what, if what do you do? 
if you're people like me, you do. <laughs> um, but, yeah, this is a vast body of work. It's a huge body of work. Um, and some of it is very repetitive. It's bound to be because it was an oral tradition. And that's the way you kept things and retained memory was by repeating them again and again and again. But there, are, there is a body of texts and even a body of extracts from texts now that you can find, which I think um, will give you some of the most important suttas there. For example, I was, I was saying to somebody earlier, I can't remember who it was, but there's a little book that I came across quite recently, which is, I think, extremely good, which is a little work, I think it's called The Basic Teachings of the Buddha, and it's translated by Glenn Wallace. And it's very good because it extracts 16 major suttas. Not all of them are very long either, but just to give the main points and extract the main points of the Buddha's teaching. To get a, it's the basic teachings of the Buddha. By, it's translated by Glenn Wallace. And he's got a commentary um, by him as well on the suttas that he's um, translating to. Um, you've got bhikkhu bodhis in the Buddha's words, which is extracts from suttas, all the important suttas there. Um, but if you wanted to take, say, one Nikaya, probably the most important one would be the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses, because there is an awful lot of material contained in that which is absolutely central, like the Satipatthana Sutta, which deals with, obviously, mindfulness, the Madhupindika Sutta, which deals with the whole of the cognitive process, you know, and so on and so forth. And it's a very, very important collection, that particular collection. So if you were going to choose one of the Nikayas to take out of them all, I'd probably say the Majjhima Nikaya. It's a, it's a little bit more um, assimilable, say, than the big baggy ones that keep going on through the same material, but in slightly different ways. Well, it is, but I mean, not everybody has aptitude for languages, do they? I mean, I do appreciate that. I mean, as much as I'd like to encourage everybody to learn Pali and perhaps, perhaps do Sanskrit first, because Pali is a lot easier once you've done Sanskrit. But uh, I don't think that's a realistic expectation. I think the best you can do if you're not going to go through learning a, a classical language, and it is a classical language, which has its good points and its bad points. good point is you're not going to speak it, so you don't have to become word perfect in pronunciation. Um, it's in Romanized script, which also makes it easy in Pali. But it does have all the apparatus of a classical language within it, um, which isn't always easy for some people. But outside of that, what I would say is there are actually a number of translations of, different, of the same suttas by different people available now. Some of them are on the Access to Insight website, as you probably know. So it's not only um, Tanjeff's translations, but they're often sometimes Bhikkhu Bodhi and somebody else as well, if they're really important suttas. Compare those translations, because each translator will have a perspective on it and come from a slightly different direction. What I think is the accumulation of perspectives, sometimes you get something which comes close to what is being originally said, perhaps in the Pali there. But, you know, I would encourage those people who think they've got an aptitude for languages, I would encourage them to learn some part. It isn't that difficult, actually, because it's a terribly repetitive language. Yeah? It's a terribly repetitive language. The main problem, I mean, Richard Gombrich um, runs a crash course in Oxford um, every summer, 
where he installs in 10 days all the basic apparatus of being able to then further self-study. Uh, and if you continue it, you would progress very easily. I mean, you're translating it on day two. He's getting you translating on day two. Yeah. So. Focus on the breath, not the breath. <laughs> <laughs> Should we take a break? Oh, yes, there's a lady over there. One, one more than a break. Uh, hopefully an easy question. Um, is there a word in Pali for mind? Because you mentioned in the Dhammapada, mind is the precursor of all things, and mm. there, there seems to be sometimes a co-translation of mind and consciousness in, in the same breath. Which That's often because of that confusion between chitta, sometimes when it's used as being the more expansive sense of mind, and sometimes when it's just being used as a synonym for vijnana, which is consciousness. That's often why that's occurring. But actually, interestingly, in the Dhammapada, it's manapabana, which actually is manas, is the actual term. And this is, again, where did I put it? Manas is another term which is used for mind. So these are the two most commonly used terms for translating the overall functions of mind. Yeah, where vinyana, more often or not, in the early tradition, not in the later traditions, because again, you don't need to confuse the two, uh, in the early tradition is more often or not solely associated with consciousness. Yeah. But, you know, it's, these words have many connotations, unfortunately. Um, which sometimes it's difficult to grasp in English, but these two are probably the best contenders, Manas and Chitta. Fifteen minutes? Fifteen minutes? Yeah.